There should be a name for where the river starts running, not in one place, but spread out like capillaries, nerve endings, roots, branches, a name for where the tips are reaching, touching snowfields receding up the mountain. The snow disappears and the land turns green, new grass, moose meadows, flowers, white pelicans floating on the lake. Up high on the mountain, the sun hits the snow and it vaporizes straight into clouds, rising up like dragons or Tibetan Garudas. The air is newborn and crying. They call it the headwaters, but it's not the head, it's the lungs. And there are two of them, one on each side of the Continental Divide, which is 3,000 miles long, 200 miles wide, the Rocky Mountains. That's how I was thinking about beginning my story about going to Colorado and riding my bike around the Continental Divide. I thought it would be a good metaphor, the divide, in presenting the opinions and lives of people I met along the way. And perhaps I'd find a way by talking and listening to bridge the cultural divide that separates our country. But while I did go ride my bike back and forth over the mountains, crossing the divide in a number of beautiful, idyllic places, taking the measure of late springtime in the Rockies, I did not talk to anybody, at least not on tape. I was sitting in my car at a lake about 8,500 feet above sea level, the top of the Platte River, when Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord. I listened to his speech on the radio, looking out at the forest where half the trees were dead, killed by a warming climate. The same thing's happening all across the Rocky Mountains, Forests are turning gray and dying. I'm no forest ecologist, but to me, it looks like the next step in this process is fire. Fires like we've never seen before. And yet President Trump said the Paris Accord costs U.S. citizens jobs and money, and that the whole world is laughing at us, so we're pulling out. The people who live out there along the Continental Divide in northwestern Colorado cattle ranchers and coal miners, loggers, people who live off the land and are sick and tired of environmental regulations. They would have been most likely overjoyed by the president's decision. So it would have been an opportune time, and perhaps even newsworthy, to talk to them. But I couldn't do it because I couldn't bear to hear what they would say. God controls the climate, America first, I've heard this too many times, and it's starting to hurt. It's heartbreaking, because we here in America have this amazing, beautiful land, and we continually fail to live up to it. And then the people there didn't want to talk to me anyway. To them, I'm the enemy. It's obvious from my clothes, my haircut, my glasses, the way I talk. I am one of the liberal elite from the city. When I tell them I'm a radio producer, this only makes things worse. I'm a maker of fake news, not to be trusted. And without trust, there's no point in talking. You may chit-chat about the weather, but no one's going to open up and be honest if they don't trust you. I used to be able to use candor and honesty to break through the distrust because I believed it's important for opinions to be voiced and heard, that public debate is essential in a democracy, and that we need to listen to normal people instead of pundits and politicians all the time. 
but this time I could not do it. I came home without any interviews, thinking that the divide is not a metaphor, that it's real and it's huge, and that nothing I do or say is going to make any difference. It was a setback, a defeat for sure, and I've been recovering, trying to figure out what to do. I don't think I'm wrong about the growing distrust in America. And if we don't trust each other, then we don't talk to each other. And if we don't talk to each other, we get lonely. Have you been feeling lonely lately? Maybe it's from a lack of trust. I'd like my stories to inspire trust, to somehow break through the fear and suspicion that's spreading like a disease. But for the life of me, I can't figure out how to do it right now except by going back to where I cowered out, back to Colorado, and start over. Face the thing I'm afraid of, which I think is this sense of distrust. Or actually, it's more than that. It's the feeling that America is broken, or the heart of America is broken by fear. So I'm going to go back, try it again, and I'll leave tomorrow. I'd like to thank Kelly McEvers for some valuable advice. And here's a clip of Jack Kerouac on The Steve Allen Show in 1959. He's talking about his book, On the Road, but what I think he's really talking about is the heart of America. And I'm going to use it as something of a guide. Thanks for listening. Well, a lot of people have asked me why did I write that book or any book. All the stories I wrote were true because I believed in what I saw. I was traveling west one time at the junction of the state line of Colorado, its arid western one, and the state line of poor Utah. I saw in the clouds huge and massed above the fiery golden desert of Evenfall, a great image of God with forefinger pointed straight at me through halos and rolls and gold folds that were like the existence of a gleaming spear in his right hand which saith, Come on, boy, go thou across the ground. Go moan for man. Go moan. Go groan. Go groan alone. Go roll your bones alone. Go thou and be little beneath my sight. Go thou and be minute as seed in the pod. Go thou, go thou, die hence. And of this world, report you well and truly. Anyway, I wrote the book because we're all gonna die. In the loneliness of my life, my father dead, my brother dead, my mother far away, my sister and my wife far away. Nothing here but my own tragic hands that once were guarded by a world, a sweet attention, that now are left to guide and disappear their own way into the common dark of all our death. Sleeping in me raw bed alone and stupid, with just this one pride and consolation, my heart broke in a general despair and opened up inwards to the Lord. I made a supplication in this dream. So in the last page of On the Road, I describe how the hero, Dean Moriarty, has come to see me all the way from the West Coast just for a day or two. We've just been back and forth across the country several times in cars, and now our adventures are over. We're still great friends, but we have to go into later phases of our lives. So there he goes, Dean Moriarty, ragged in the moth-eaten overcoat he brought specially for the freezing temperatures of the East walking off alone, and last I saw him, he rounded the corner of 7th Avenue, eyes on the street ahead, and bent to it again. Gone.
So, in America, when the sun goes down, and I sit on the old broken down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey, and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the west coast, and all that road going, and all the people dreaming in the immensity of it, in an Iowa, I know by now that children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out. And don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all the rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in. Nobody. Nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. Think of Dean Moriarty, I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. Think of Dean Moriarty, I think of Dean Moriarty. <laughs> 